Hello. Welcome to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan. My goal is for us to discover jazz old and new together by listening to a wide array of selections and exploring different jazz styles and topics related to jazz. We'll learn more about what it is, what it isn't, how it's developed, and what we can listen for to enhance our experience. This program is on Trent Radio, 92.7 on your dial, and Peterborough Independent Podcasters. For the next 60 minutes, Discovering Jazz. When we think of jazz in the city of Peterborough, Ontario, the name Craig Patterson will often come up. Craig is a phenomenal jazz bassist, having played in a group called Carp Diem, and is still part of an ensemble called Standard Time. He also is involved in so many projects bringing jazz to the city, at one time being the overseer for the Kawartha Jazz Society, then was a key player in the presentation of concerts for International Jazz Day. Today and next program, I'll be talking to Craig as he talks about some of the albums that formed his excitement about jazz, most of them from the late 60s to mid-1970s. He chose 10 albums, and in asking him for his criteria as to how he chose them, here is his response. So all of them are still an important part of your oh, life? Yeah. I mean, if I had to, you know, do the island disc thing, you know, these would be on it. And there's some things right. since then, but these were, like, musical brain-shaping influences from, you know, age 13-ish on. Let's start with a record that got him started by Cannonball Adderley. The title song that we're going to hear right now reached number 11 in the Billboard Hot 100 charts. You know, sometimes we're not prepared for adversity. When it happens, sometimes we're caught short. We don't know exactly how to handle it when it comes up. Sometimes we don't know just what to do when adversity takes over. (laughs) And uh, I have advice for all of us. I got it from our pianist, Joe Zabinu, who wrote this tune. And it sounds like what you're supposed to say when you have that kind of problem. It's called Mercy, Mercy, Mercy.
brother took me to see Cannibal Adderley at a club in Vancouver when I was, yeah, 13, 14 maybe. So, and looking back, I think that band was Cannibal, Nat, I think Joe Zavignol was there playing piano. I was in a nightclub. I was in a jazz club as an underage jazz kid who knew nothing. Listening to this band playing Mercy, Mercy, Mercy and Work Song and I, I was blown away, right? So I, I went off and I bought that album and listened to it. Uh, I think I learned to play Work Song badly, but I did learn it. Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was great. So it was one of the... Now, I, I haven't listened to it in years. It was sort of like a soul... This wasn't a bebop album. I wasn't, and I didn't know any of that kind of stuff back then. I didn't know what bebop was. It's just this was a saxo player playing this thing called jazz, and I was sitting in a club, probably drinking Seven Up or something because I wasn't drinking, um, and being completely knocked out by it. It was great. And yet, this is—I mean, when you think of jazz, that tune and probably most of that album is pretty basic. Isn't yeah, it? no, it's you know, it's really simple, sort of. Some, I don't know what, what the changes are, but sort of blues inflected, some soul, some groove, uh, you know, maybe boogaloo kind of stuff. Yeah, really accessible music. So that was, it was great because probably if I'd gone to see something really weird and wild, I would have, well, who knows what would have happened to me, but that was the first band I ever saw live. So that particular concert in the club, that's what hooked you? It, it really did. It was like, okay, I like this stuff for some reason I don't even understand. Some, uh, I don't know what that what the draw is to uh, to listen to this music. Craig's next foray into jazz was a huge leap in accessibility. No way would this next record reach number eleven on the Hot 100 charts. It was the spiritual and free jazz music of saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders, and specifically the album Suman Buckman Amyam from 1970. The title is Arabic for Deaf, Dumb, Blind. What was it about this very unusual music, unusual for the time and probably still pretty unusual, that appealed to Craig at there the time? There was something going on in those recordings that just made that music incredibly powerful at a physical level right? sort of this kind of energizing stuff and um, partly because it was so brash and loud and busy and complicated well, I mean complicated in the sense of they, they would have like five or six percussionists and a drummer laying down this African stuff that just you know, thumb pianos, cowbells hand drums, a drum kit you know, the bass player laying down a, a line, uh, big fat piano chords and horn players sort of going crazy over it, right? I'll play the entire title tune to that Pharaoh Saunders album that translates as Deaf, Dumb and Blind, 21 minutes of it. I think you'll get a sense if you focus on it as to how it really does command your focus and the physical level at which it gets you. Although at the time an article in the New Yorker described his music as elephant shrieks, a reviewer in all music refers to how the Latin and African polyrhythms collide with the horns calling and responding over the wash of bass and drums and drums and drums, unquote. And then he adds, 
it evolves into a percussion orgy before the scary, otherworldly, multiphonic solos begin. Pharaoh Saunders from 1970.
Pharaoh Saunders, Suman Bookman Amyan, or Deaf, Dumb, and Blind. Also on the album are Woody Shaw, Gary Bartz, Lonnie Liston-Smith, bassist Cecil McBee, and a number of drummers and percussionists. 
This is Discovering Jazz on Trent Radio, 92.7 on your FM dial, as well as through Peterborough Independent Podcasters. My name is Larry Sademan, and today I'm talking to jazz bassist Craig Patterson, learning about 10 of the most formative recordings from his youth, records he still listens to today for the most part. So what do we got next there, Craig? Well, on the list, the next in order is is uh, Miles Davis's uh, Bitches Brew album, which came out in, I don't know, when, when did that album come out? 1969, maybe? It was recorded in 69, anyway. Okay. Bitches Brew was, I, I think, a, a world-changing piece of music. Well, pieces of music. The band was phenomenal set of players, almost all of whom moved on to creating incredible music, particularly in the jazz fusion world, but I don't like that word so much, but you know, Wayne Shorter's there, Joe Zavignol's there, Chick Corea's there, Mary Hancock's there, John McLaughlin's there, Miroslav Vitus is there. I mean, it's like John Dave Holland is somewhere in there, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was on Lenny Beast. White's on there. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's like a who's who, which is what Miles was about often, was finding these musicians. And the tunes are great. Uh, I mean, there are people who hate the album because it's, you know, Wynton Marcellus, you know, Miles stopped playing jazz about then, right? I think, well, no, Wynton, he just started doing something different that you don't happen to like, is is my take on it. Um, I think it's phenomenal, right? Miles brought a a version of this band to, uh, to Vancouver, so 1970, 71, maybe, 71. I don't know who's, I can't remember, I think Keith Jarrett was on keys, Dejanette was on drums, Gary Bartz was on saxophone, Dave Holland, I think, was on bass, Miles, and Ayurto Marrero was playing percussion. It, it was, again, like, phenomenal show, just this music moving into places that, you know, I, I knew the album, and they were sort of playing those pieces, and they would shift into a new piece with, seemingly no indication of why, how, when, or what, how that happened. It would just, it would move. And you think, how'd that happen? And the more magic would happen, right? So one of the last times Keith, Keith Jarrett played electric keys anywhere, but uh, it was great. I mean, it was, mind, it was, I mean, the phrase of mind-blowing, right? What I can't figure out, Craig, is why Bitches Brew caught on so much to the public, something that's sort of as out there as it is. It was so popular. Why? I don't, I don't know. I think it was probably the first time anybody had really amalgamated sort of the rock sensibility, the sort of progressive rock sensibility perhaps, and jazz. So this kind of improvising... In a, in a context that wasn't swinging. You know what, there's no swing on that album that I can recall. There's nothing where anybody's walking a you know, four bass notes to a bar kind of swinging thing. It's just, it's, you know, it's not a funk groove. It's just there's a groove going on. So maybe that appealed to, it was loud. That's the other part, right? So you have electric guitars, electric bass, electric keys. And I came across this quote. I found quite interesting. I'm curious to think of it from Donald Fagan at the time. He said, to me, it was just silly and out of tune and bad. I couldn't listen to it. It sounded like Davis was trying for a funk record and just picked the wrong guys. They didn't understand how to play funk. 
they weren't steady enough. <laughs> yeah, that's Donald Fagan from uh, whatever, the, um, Steely Dan. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. Sure, <laughs> whatever, Donald. I, mean, I never had the sense that he was trying to create a funk album. Okay. Uh, I don't think, I mean, as, yes, funk was happening, you, but I don't, that's not what I ever heard on it, on a failed attempt at funk. Uh, I think if Donald listened to things like On the Corner, where Miles was going for a funk thing, he might have a different story. Bitches Brew was a double album, released in March of 1970 and became Miles Davis's first gold record, selling over half a million copies. I'll play at least probably most of the track that began side four, called Miles Runs the Voodoo Down. Features Miles Davis on trumpet, Wayne Shorter on soprano sax, Bertie Mopin on bass clarinet, two pianists, Joe Zawinal and Chikria, John McLaughlin on electric guitar, Dave Holland and Harvey Brooks on electric bass, and two drummers and a percussionist, Don Alias, Jack DeJeanette, and Yuma Santos. Miles Davis from Bitches Brew.
The next album on Craigslist, The Inner Mounting Flame. Well, Mahavishnu Orchestra, um, John McLaughlin's band of the uh, post-Bitches Brute era, right? So John McLaughlin you know, comes, to, comes to America, plays with Miles, does that stuff, becomes a meditator, gets involved with Street Jimoy, starts doing that whole thing, changes his name to Mahavishnu, which I don't know what that means, and creates his band, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, uh, a five-piece band that, again, was earth-shaking, taking sort of rock and Hendrix and volume and taking jazz guys, they're almost always guys in these bands, <laughs> and playing and writing really cool tunes using odd time signatures for a lot of the stuff, writing pretty melodies. I remember when my friends and I first bought the album, we, we put on, I guess, side two, because it was vinyl, and the drum part starts and we stop and say, well, it says there's only one drummer on this album, but it sounds like there's two. And we'd play it again and again, and we'd say, no, no, it's like, there's two drummers going on here. It's like, no, there wasn't. There was one. And there was mm-hmm. Billy Cobham doing right. what Billy Cobham did then, which is this incredible powerful drumming that, that, again, nobody else had done. I mean, I think Billy Cobb also was on Bitches Root for some of it. Um, like nobody had done this before, as far as I knew. In a, ja- in a jazz context, there were rock drummers who were loud, and but Billy was, just, was more than just loud. He was a jazz drummer, so he brought that with him. Um, great solos. McLaughlin's guitar is playing as was and still is you know, out of this world and you can play it really loud mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, and again it was some of this like the Pharaoh Saunders etc is visceral right so part of it was volume and part of it was this kind of energy that would just come out and again right Mahavishnu Sana kind of spiritual journey I don't think everybody else in the band was but he was uh and Jerry Goodman's violin added something unique to it yeah nobody yeah, that was a whole new cool thing um Jan Hammer's playing electric keys most of the time. Rick Laird, who I think is an, was originally an acoustic bass player, was playing electric bass. Right? So you have an electric band playing. This is one of the first quote-unquote jazz fusion bands. Uh, I think it was a brilliant band. But that album, if you you know when you play play a selection on it, the Lotus on an Irish Stream is an interesting tune to play. Short, I think, a couple three minutes. And then in contrast to one of the electric things, because the acoustic thing is, it's very sweet. Excellent idea, Craig. I'll play just a minute of that first track on side two, where he and his friends were so awed by Billy Cobham's drumming. That one's called Vital Transformation. Then I'll play that acoustic piece, A Lotus on Irish Streams. John McLaughlin and the Mahavishnu Orchestra from 1971.
I asked Craig Patterson about any Canadian musicians who influenced him. When I made this list, obviously no Canadians show up on it. Um, but one of the people that I was aware of when I was a young kid trying to play saxophone in Vancouver, I wasn't very good. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. um, PJ Perry, who was an alto player living in Vancouver at the time, working with CBC and various other settings. He would come to these concerts and other concerts, these uh, like uh, after hours clubs, and the music would suddenly lift off in a, in a whole new way, right? As I was saying before, it's like he was so good and he just took everybody up, you know, several notches in his plane. And it'd be like, also, oh, this is what can happen, right? So, this, you, know, you don't have to have international stars. But, um, what was it specifically about PJ that made things lift off? Like, what is it about his playing? Well, I want to say he was a little bit like Charlie Parker, and I don't even know when I say that what I mean by that, but it was just kind of, he seemed so into it. It'd be like 1 o'clock in the morning, and he'd arrive and open up his horn case and just start playing. Really incredible, strong, interesting stuff. Uh, and other people seemed, to, I mean, I, you know, I was a kid still, I wasn't really aware of it, but it felt like maybe other other people who were playing were sort of going through the motion. PJ was like playing as if his life depended on it. I'll finish off with a track from a PJ Perry album called Nota Bene that he recorded in Toronto in 2009 with Mark Eisenman on piano, Neil Swainson bass, and John Sumner on drums. Also reminding you to tune in next week for part two of Craig Patterson's formative recordings. This is Discovering Jazz on Trent Radio and Peterborough Independent Podcasters. I'm Larry Sademan saying bye for now. Taking us out is P.J. Perry and What'll I Do?